Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from across Ukraine, discuss the economic developments in the country over the past two years, and we ask how a war between Russia and the West could unfold by looking at the Suvalki Gap. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 22nd of January, one year and 331 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and our guest is Liliane Bivings, business editor at the Kyiv Independent. I started by asking Dom, for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, everybody. So let's start updates over the weekend. Ukrainian forces reportedly conducted successful drone strikes against targets in Leningrad and Tula oblasts. The first of those basically centred on St. Petersburg. That's about 300 k's northwest of Moscow and the Tula oblast about 100 k's south. Ukrainian media citing unnamed sources within Ukrainian special services said that their forces had conducted drone strikes against the... Oh, God, I've been practising this all morning. I've forgotten... Uh, Shiglovsky valve plant in the northeast of Tula City and the Novateka plant and gas terminal near the port of Ustluga. That's about 80 k's west of St. Petersburg. This is overnight Saturday, Sunday. I think it was actually in the very early hours of Sunday morning. Now, the factory in Tula reportedly manufactures Pantsir S and Pantsir S1 air defence systems and the Ustluga complex reportedly processes natural gas products into diesel, kerosene, naval fuel and other stuff I'd never heard of when I got up this morning. ISW suggest, that's the Institute for the Study of War, they suggest repeated Ukrainian drone strikes may be trying to fix Russian short-range air defence systems, defending potentially significant targets along the expected flight routes to basically prevent them from being deployed in Ukraine. Now, Russian sources ran footage of explosions at both sites. Interestingly, geolocated footage published on Saturday showed additional explosions over Smolensk city. That's about... 250 k's west of Moscow, near the border with Belarus. That indicated possible additional Ukrainian strikes in the area. So it's easy to get confused. There's a lot of things going bang in Russia at the moment. Russia's Ministry of Defence claimed that their air defence had destroyed five drones over Tula, Smolensk and Oryol Oblast, that last one being about 100 k's further south of Tula, uh, about the same distance again from the, the border with Ukraine. So bar the St. Petersburg bit, we're all to the to the south and southwest of Moscow, really. On the Usk-Luga attack in St. Petersburg, the BBC reported the blast had caused a large fire at the terminal, but no injuries. They were citing Russian officials, but they also reported 
an official source in Kyiv saying that the what they're calling the special operation of the SBU, the security service of, of Ukraine, masterminded the attack uh, with drones. Now, regional governor Alexander Drozhenko said that a, quote, high alert regime was in place after the incident and later announced work at the terminal had been suspended, said the fire there was the result of external influence. Fair enough. Kiev says that fuel processed at that plant was being used to supply Russian troops in Ukraine and that the strike, in their words, significantly complicates logistics for the Russian military. Now, I've not yet worked out for myself where I stand on whether the prime driver for these attacks on infrastructure is an attempt by Ukraine to A, impact Russia's supply of fuel to the front lines, B, hit Russia's economy, C, sow dissent amongst the population by knocking out energy supplies, D, all of the above, or F, what happened to E? Ha, a little bit of Western humour there for the trolls. Speaking of whom, and for what it's worth, which isn't much, when asked about Ukraine's attack on the uh, Baltic Sea oil terminal, that's the one in St. Petersburg, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, the Ministry of Defence, our air defence assets, other relevant agencies are taking necessary measures to protect against this kind of terrorist attack. Here we go. We're back in Schrodinger's drones territory. Russian drone strikes are targeted and legitimate acts of self-defence. Ukraine's drone strikes are terrorist acts, obviously. Peskov went on, as he always does. The Kyiv regime is continuing to show its vicious side in that they are striking civilian infrastructure. They are striking people, civilians. I mean, you must think we're stupid, Dimitri, or at least hoping that enough of us are or don't care about what you're doing in Ukraine. Now, the ISW in their analysis of this says Russian air defence systems in Leningrad Oblast are most likely positioned to defend against strikes from the northwest and the west, as Russia has historically arrayed its air defence in the area to defence against hypothetical NATO attacks. They go on to say the Russian military is currently reforming the Leningrad military district with the expressed intent to prepare for a potential future conventional war against NATO and maybe arranging military assets in a way to posture along the border with NATO members. Now, that area up there, the St. Petersburg, the oblast there, it borders Finland to the northwest. Estonia to the southwest, NATO members, of course, at which point I should sound the regular cautionary reminder that even with the addition to NATO of Finland's 1,300-kilometre border with Russia, NATO territory still only touches Russia for about 11% of Russia's entire border region, which hardly supports the Kremlin narrative of Russia being surrounded by a rapacious expansionist NATO. Yeah, come and have a go, trolls, if your arguments are hard enough. Continuing on Saturday, Ukrainian military officials said Russia launched seven Shahid 131 and 136 drones from the usual site, Primorsko Aktarsk. That's about 100 k's northeast of the Kirsch Bridge. It's on Russia's Sea of Azov coast. They also launched three S 300 missiles from occupied Luhansk Oblast. Ukrainian forces said they intercepted four of the seven drones. The S 300 missile struck Kunka. That's about 30 k's northwest of Donetsk City. Ukraine's Air Force spokesperson, uh, Colonel Yuri Inyat, he said recent Russian strikes have attempted to overload Ukrainian air defences. 
He did, however, interestingly, acknowledge Ukrainian forces have concentrated a considerable amount of their air defence near Kyiv to defense, uh, defend against the regular strikes there. I said it would be difficult for Ukrainian forces to disperse these systems as Russia's campaign continues. You can't do that very quickly. Now, you may remember the report from a couple of weeks ago that more Shahid drones were being fired at frontline positions that we, we talked about at the time. We said that's possibly an acknowledgement that they, they, the Shahids, just not good at getting through an integrated air defence network. They are basically low, slow and noisy, um, but they are very destructive still in areas where air defence can't cover. I, you can't have air defence everywhere all the time. You'd bankrupt your treasury to do so. So there's going to be holes and those gaps seem to be in short range air defence at least down on the front line. So that seems to be where the Shahids are heading more, more regularly now. Then on Sunday, at least 27 people were killed in a what we think is a shelling attack in the Russian-held city of Donetsk. This comes from the Moscow-installed leader of the region there, Denis Pushilin. He described the strike on a busy market as horrendous, said the number of casualties could rise. He blamed Ukraine, but the Ukraine, Ukrainian army group operating in the region said it did not carry out the attack. They said on Facebook that this is the Tavria unit, which is part of the Ukrainian army. They said its forces did not engage in combat operations in this case. They said Donetsk is Ukraine. Russia will have to be held accountable for the lives of Ukrainians taken. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs called it a barbaric there we go, barbaric terrorist attack against the peaceful people of Russia and said Ukraine had used weapons supplied by the West. Now, we, the Telegraph, can't verify any of those claims. Um, and then finally, for me, for now, last night, Ukraine repelled all eight drones that had been launched by Russia, more Iranian-designed Shahid drones. Again, they were shot down over the central and southern areas of Ukraine. This comes from their air force. No information on casualties or damage disclosed. And I note that as of, well, now, 18 minutes ago, air defence or air, uh, air raid sirens going across, going off across the majority of Ukraine, only the very far west and southwest not currently experiencing an air raid line that started uh, 18 minutes ago. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Let's start off our diplomatic and political roundup with a couple of stories from Volodymyr Zelensky, who's submitting a bill to the RADA to introduce the institution of multiple citizenship. Uh, Zelensky announced this in a video address on Ukrainian Unity Day. That's today, the 22nd of January, which is the anniversary of the unification of eastern and western Ukraine in 1919. So some details. At the moment, a Ukrainian law prohibits dual citizenship, but Zelensky wants to allow all ethnic Ukrainians and, crucially, descendants from different countries except Russia, to have it. This includes all of those who were forced to leave Ukraine during various waves of emigration and ended up in Europe, the United States, Canada, Asia and Latin America. And I would say, of course, that we, we're aware certainly of many Ukrainian Americans and Ukrainian Canadians who listen to this podcast who will be descendants of those uh, waves of emigration. So Zelensky said, quote, Ukrainians by origin who have long proved that they are Ukrainians in spirit after many years of waiting should finally become Ukrainians by passport at the legislative level. This draft law will also apply, interestingly, to foreign military volunteers fighting on the side of Ukraine, of whom thousands have served in the armed forces since Russia's invasion. And that goes all the way back to 2014. Zelensky said, foreign volunteers who took up arms to defend Ukraine, all those who fight for Ukraine's freedom as if it were their homeland, Ukraine will become such for them. For everyone who can feel that being in Ukraine means being at home, not as tourists, but as citizens, a great, unified, united Ukraine. 
Moving on from that, we'll see, we'll obviously update you on the uh, progress of this draft bill, but he's also signed a decree, Volodymyr Zelensky has signed a decree instructing the government to develop a plan for preserving the national identity of the, quote, historically inhabited lands of Krasnodar Krai, Belgorod, Bryansk, Voronezh, Kursk and Rostov. The Ukrainian People's Republic, that's the state which existed between the 1917 February Revolution uh, and its forced integration within the Soviet Union in 1921, claimed parts of those six now Russian regions, as well as areas of modern Slovakia, Poland, Moldova and Belarus. Uh, Again, one to keep an eye on, and I'm sure we'll be bringing you updates over the next few weeks. In other political news from Ukraine, Donald Tusk, Poland's new prime minister, has arrived in Kiev on his first visit to Ukraine since being elected. His office said he would meet Volodymyr Zelensky and Prime Minister Denis Szymal. Tusk has vowed to, quote, solve problems between Poland and Ukraine after months of disgruntled Polish truckers blockading the Ukrainian border. They've recently, of course, called off their blockade, so there'll be, uh, I think, some goodwill there. Tusk said... There are some conflicts of interest, we know it well, and we will talk about them, but not only in the spirit of friendship, which is obvious, but with the attitude to solve these problems as soon as possible, not to maintain or multiplying them. Continuing, he said, For me, it is very important to build the feeling that Poland is the most reliable, most stable ally of Ukraine in this deadly clash with evil. Let's move away from Ukraine then and look at some of the diplomatic developments around Russia and for Russia. Today, Russia will be grilled by the UN about the thousands of Ukrainian children believed to have been abducted and sent to Russia since the war began. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child is holding a two-day hearing on Russia's record on the treatment of children. It will investigate how many children have been quote, evacuated, end quote, to Russia or relocated within occupied Ukrainian territory. It also wants to know what Moscow has done to protect, quote, the right of such children to preserve their identity, including nationality, name and family relations. Let's just remind ourselves, Kiev estimates that 20,000 Ukrainian children at least have been forcibly deported to Russia. Moscow says it wants to protect these children from the fighting. Only about 400 children have so far been repatriated. And we've spoken many times on this podcast and interviewed quite a few of the people involved in that effort. At the same time, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has arrived in New York to attend a UN meeting on Ukraine and the Middle East. The Russian foreign secretary flew on an unspecified northern route to bypass unfriendly countries, which took 12 hours and 45 minutes. This comes from the Russian state news agency TASS. Finally, from Russia, the Kremlin has said it has no idea how Donald Trump could follow through on his claimed plan to end the war in Ukraine in 24 hours. Remember... Trump, the frontrunner now to be the Republican candidate in November's presidential election, said in July that he had a plan that would bring peace in 24 hours. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, no, we have no understanding of how this can be done. We have had not we have not had any contacts on this. Mr. Trump has never visited Ukraine, despite two invitations from Zelensky, one in November 2023 and another one that came on Friday. Finally, some other diplomatic news before we go to Joe Barnes. This comes from Robert Fico, Slovakia's prime minister, who has said that Ukraine cannot expect peace with Russia if it is not willing to give up Crimea, Donetsk and Luhansk. Fico said this ahead of a meeting with Ukrainian prime minister Shimal on Wednesday. Just some quotes from him. There should be some kind of compromise here, he said. What do they expect? That the Russians will leave Crimea, Donbass and Luhansk? That's unrealistic. 
Mr. Fico also said that Ukraine was, quote, one of the most corrupt nations in the world and under the total influence and control of the United States. He added, I will tell him, that's Mr. Shmihal, uh, that I am against the membership of Ukraine in NATO and that I will veto it. It would merely be a basis for World War III, nothing else. So remarks there from Robert Fico, Slovakia's prime minister, ahead of an important meeting on Wednesday, but it hardly sets a, a good tone for that. Let's move then to our guest and business editor, of the Kiev Independent, Lillian Bivings. Lillian, thank you so much for joining us. Could you? Could we start with a relatively broad question? What do you see as the most important industrial and business priorities for Ukraine at the moment? Hello, thanks for having me. But yes, yeah, so I boiled it down. I think there's five major industrial and business priorities for Ukraine right now. I mean, for the government, number one priority is military tech and weapon production. I think it goes without saying. That's the most important thing in Ukraine right now. The war, of course, is very far from over, and I think the Ukrainian government knows that a solid military tech industry that includes drone production, dual-use technologies, if they play this right, it has huge potential that, of course, also goes beyond the war. Because once it's over, if the infrastructure for that industry is there, Ukraine could become a global uh, defense industry player. And as part of that, Recently, the economy minister, Yulia Sovrydenko, said that Ukraine plans to launch five joint ventures with Western arms manufacturers this year. I think a couple have already been launched. And she said that this is really a top priority for 2024. So I think that's something definitely to watch and definitely the top priority. Then, of course, you have exports. Ukraine just focusing on getting as much out as possible through the available channels. So that's its corridor in the Black Sea, which doesn't have huge volumes, but it's been pretty good. And then, of course, through its western borders and Danube river ports as well. The third one, more war insurance to spur investment. Because as you may or may not know, there is very little commercial investment in Ukraine, meaning investment in Ukraine is basically just with institutional monies, money from IFIs, World Bank, IFC, International Finance Corporation, and so on, which is, of course, tied closely to reconstruction, which is the fourth priority, because you can't possibly rebuild everything that needs to be rebuilt in Ukraine without private capital. This is not possible. And so they need to find a way to bring in more commercial investments for those types of projects. And lastly, but certainly not least, you have agriculture as a huge priority. And what that really means is demining. It's not just exports of agricultural products, but actually demining so much of Ukraine that is has been mined as a result of the war so that you can continue to use this land to grow things and to export Ukraine's most important exports, which is agricultural products. And that actually is tied into the sort of private capital thing because mostly demining is done by very large multinational organizations and smaller scale demining is not really happening in areas where it could, which would help smaller companies or smaller farmers get back to work, I should say. And so that's a huge priority for the country as well this year. Well, thank you very much, Lillian, for talking us through those. Could we take one step back, or a few steps back, maybe, zooming out? What do you make of the state of the Ukrainian economy nearly two years into the full-scale invasion? Yeah, so the good news is that the economy is alive and kicking. It's not just trudging along. It's been quite resilient, especially after the first year of the full-scale invasion in 2022, which saw you know, a 29% drop in GDP. And given this stronger-than-expected recovery... Uh, the IMF upgraded Ukraine's GDP growth to 4.5% last year, which is a pretty good indicator of where things are. And the growth last year 
or, or rather the recovery, I should say, last year was mostly due to the fact that Ukrainian businesses managed to keep going despite everything. They just sort of figured things out. Then you have the collapse of the Black Sea Grain Initiative when Russia pulls out, but then Ukraine manages sort of miraculously to pull off its own cord. You have a lot of development going on in Danube River ports, investment there to expand those ports. And I think it just shows that businesses were able to either work around things to, to keep going, to keep producing. Agriculture did quite well. There were good yields. And you had businesses moving too. A lot of businesses have moved from the east um, and the south of Ukraine to western Ukraine, central Ukraine. That's made a difference. I think one of the things that people know Ukraine for is its IT sector, which is inherently resilient because you know, these things are all online for the most part, and they're easy to move. The, the physical people, it was easy to move them to get them out of dangerous zones and set up shop in other places. So I think the economy is very resilient. And, you know, I live in Kiev, and I've even noticed that it's not just that businesses are open and still operating, like new businesses are opening all of the time, especially like in cities like Kiev and Lviv, you notice that bookstores are opening constantly. It's this phenomenon in the war right now that's really curious, where like, every week, it seems like a new bookstore is opening. I, I as a business reporter, I and an editor, I try to think, well, is it maybe because the model of opening a bookstore has low barriers to entry and is cheap? I don't know. Is it a sign that, like, for Ukrainians, this is some sort of respite from the war? It's a way of connecting with their culture? Anyway, there's all these different things and new things happening. And another indicator, I think, that things are doing a little better and the economy will benefit from this is that you actually hear and see more foreigners on the street in Kiev these past days, like these past few months, which is interesting. So, yes. Yeah, it doesn't mean that things are not difficult, but they're steady, I would say. That's a really interesting account. Thank you for that. Can I ask what warning signs you see then for the future? But equally, you've mentioned the, the bookshops there, but what are the other sort of green shoots or success stories we should be paying attention to? I mean, the fact that the economy has done well is you know, a sign that Ukrainian businesses are resilient. Ukrainian business people are resilient. The National Bank and the Finance Ministry have also done a lot, uh, along with international partners, to to keep the economy going, of course. But I think the success stories, some of the most impressive stories we're working on right now is entire factories moving from eastern or southern Ukraine to western Ukraine with the families, with their children and everything, and just completely rebuilding factories from scratch. I mean, not all industries can do this. Certain machinery cannot just be picked up and moved, obviously. But that's been a really interesting trend that I have observed, that we have observed here at Cayman Independent. Also, one thing that is sort of related to the economy, but that's quite interesting, is that Ukrainians have donated a lot of money within Ukraine. Ukrainians donating to Ukraine. And the banks have facilitated a lot of this, and they've benefited from people using their banking platforms to donate among each other. So Monobank, which is one of Ukraine's largest, or if not its largest mobile-only bank, so it's only on an app, has generated almost a billion dollars in donations within Ukraine from Ukrainians. And actually, to that point, the banks have done extremely well in Ukraine. They're making record profits. There's a lot of reasons for that, but there's a lot of sectors are actually doing quite well. It's That's another interesting thing to note about when you're talking about how businesses are doing well in the economy, there's a lot of um, industries or sectors rather that don't really want to talk about how they're doing well because they're a little bit ashamed that they might be doing, they might be making record profits at a time when the country is suffering so much. I mean, insurance, the insurance sector, for obvious reasons, is doing quite well in Ukraine. So it's a complicated picture, but I think that when you talk about the, the green shoots or success stories, it's by sector and it's just by 
Ukrainians just figuring it out, which has been impressive to, to witness. But I think in terms of warning signs, which is quite frightening, is the fact that without external financing this year, like people are warning of Ukraine's economy actually collapsing. I mean, there's just no way for Ukraine to survive without this external financing. So as you may know, Ukraine spends 100% of government revenue on its military, right? The money that it gets from abroad is for everything else. And Ukraine's external financing needs for next year, according to the finance ministry as of last week, are at about $37 billion, or about $3 billion a month. And right now, with aid tied up both in the United States and in Europe, it's frightening. I mean, like economists here in Ukraine have said, there's just no way for Ukraine to make up that gap. And so that's the effects that will have on the economy will obviously be huge. And so I think everybody here is hoping that this money will get approved in both Europe and in the United States. Just a question on that, Lillian. You said that when you're looking at recovery or green shoots, it's important to look by sector by sector. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, geography plays a role in this as well. As you, as you mentioned, you know, factories and businesses are moving west to be safe. What about the regions in the east? What impact does that have on, on them if, if so many things are, are moving away? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting story. So I think it's going to be a very bad impact. And as, as people listening may know, southern and eastern Ukraine obviously already heavily affected from the Russia invading uh, in 2014. But also these are the Rust Belt industrial regions of Ukraine anyway. So they've already been affected over the last decades, right? And so already difficult, made even worse by the war in 2014. Now the war now, depopulation, occupation, obviously, Russia's sort of lack of investment uh, in the areas that it occupies, in Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast specifically. And so I think this is actually something really to watch in Ukraine, right? Is if, if you have businesses moving and people with them, not just the company, but the families along with them, the employees, to central and western Ukraine, you're massively changing the economic geography of a country. And right now, we can't really tell exactly what that means, but it's it's clearly going to mean something, right? I think it's going to look like you have, I mean, I'm from the United States, right? So I know what happens when you hollow out entire regions of their industries, right? They become quite, you know, desperate. And I think that's what we will observe in eastern and southern Ukraine when those regions are liberated. It, it will be hard uh, and a lot of investment will be needed, um, so it's a very complicated question, but I think it's something that the Ukrainian government will have to pay uh, very close attention to, especially when it's liberating and, and reintegrating these areas. Could we speak about a specific, partly economic crisis? This is the, the truckers' crisis. I mean, we've seen over months uh, blockades on the Polish border, the Slovakian border, I think the Romanian border as well. What's your take on it from Kiev? Why did it happen? What was its impact? And how do people in Ukraine speak about it? I guess that we, we haven't asked that question perhaps as much as we should have done. So you have these blockades start a couple few months ago, almost, right? And for Ukrainians, right away, it the sort of visceral reaction was that this is a stab in the back, right? Like, you guys know that we're already suffering. We can't export out of the Black Sea, which is where the vast majority of our exports were going out of. And the only option we have is Danube River and, and land, some railway, but uh, the Western borders are super important and you're blocking them. You're making this more complicated for us. Like you have uh, Ukrainian officials in, almost insulting Polish officials saying, you know, you're committing kind of economic genocide against us and things like this. Very, very, you know, emotional 
remarks, which of course did not uh, go well, over well with Polish officials who felt like, well, look, here's what happened according to us. Ukrainians, after the full-scale invasion, Ukrainian logistics companies and truck drivers are allowed to enter the EU, meaning Poland or, or the other countries on its border that are part of the EU, uh, without permits. So they lifted the permits they needed to get in. And Ukrainians can offer cheaper logistic services, and they don't have to abide by all the same EU rules, right? So according to the farmers and truckers that are protesting, this is undercutting their business, which is, I mean, it's, from what I can tell, is probably likely what happened. Because you had, before the full-scale invasion, I think 100-some thousand of these permits for Ukrainian truck drivers were granted each year. And then after the full-scale invasion, you have something like almost 900,000 Ukrainian truck drivers coming into Poland without the permit they need. So there's obviously an influx. It's clearly going to be disruptive. And I think that just caused a, a lot of anxiety, which was interesting. If you look back, the same thing happened when Poland joined the EU. German truckers and logistics companies were complaining that Polish truckers were undercutting their business. So this makes sense. But yeah, I think in Ukraine, it was it's really it's frustrating because there's already so much frustration. But I think it's calmed down a little bit. I think people have understood that, look, uh, this war is affecting not only us, but others. Um, and it's not our fault, but it is sort of what it is, um, and that some solution needs to be found. I think when we're talking about what the larger impact is of this, well, A, they're not over. So the, the truckers have and the farmers have mostly suspended their protests, but they're threatening to start them if they don't get what they want. And there's EU meetings coming up where things will be decided, and I think this week and in March, and if they don't really get what they want, that we'll start the protests again. So there's a risk it will happen again. But I think what it really is is an indicator of what the future holds uh, when, you know, real EU negotiations start with Kyiv, with Ukraine, because these issues, this trade and border issues, these are going to come up. And I think Ukraine's neighbors are going to put it through the ringer in terms of how it's going to manage these things and make sure that an influx of its cheaper products don't just undercut every single industry and, and cause problems, um, which it probably will anyway. But I think it's going to be a foreshadowing uh, of what's to come uh, in that negotiation process. It's going to be painful for everyone. Just one more question from me before I hand over to Dom, who I know has one as well. You mentioned this in your first answer, Lillian, about the attempt of the Ukrainian government essentially to onshore military production uh, of munitions, of weapons, i.e. rather than relying on increasingly unreliable allies around the world to donate and send things, Ukraine is attempting to make it all at home so they can rely on themselves. Is that going well? What developments do you see there? Yeah, so the major area for development is drones. So I would say that it's going pretty well. I mean, you have, I think before the full-scale invasion, you have a handful, or, or in the beginning, the early days of the full-scale invasion, excuse me, you have a handful of uh, drones being produced and being used on the battlefield in Ukraine. And now you have hundreds, either in different, you know, either being used or produced or, or designed right now. And you have just small and medium-sized drone producers all over the country now. So this is a huge industry. And I think it's growing. Cybersecurity is another one in Ukraine that's receiving investment and being noticed. I know that there are difficulties, though, for Ukraine to get all of the materials or rather the parts that it needs to, to make these uh, to make these drones or other type of military equipment. It can be 
very challenging because a lot of them come from China, which has some sort of some export controls on uh, products to Ukraine, like microchips. So it can be still a challenge. The other one is military hardware, larger equipment. Again, it can be really difficult for Ukraine to get the things it needs to produce. So it's definitely a booming industry in a way, because of course, as everybody says now, right, this is a giant testing field and Ukrainians are testing out military equipment in real time. And people all over the world are paying attention to that and they're actually tracking it and they're seeing what works and what doesn't. And so a lot of people around the world have a huge interest in observing and following what's happening with Ukrainian weapons productions, of course, Russian weapons productions as well on the battlefield here as a way of looking at where to invest, how to invest, what could be successful, what could be exported later on and things like that. So I think it's certainly a priority for the government, but I think it's also a priority for for investors. I mean, when you talk to people about where they want to put their money in Ukraine, it's military tech. If if it's an investor that wants to put their money uh, in military tech or dual use technologies or cybersecurity. I think that's the hope, right? I think the Ukrainian government sort of has its hopes pinned on this a little bit. Okay, if we if we do this right, we'll become a real player. I think it gives the other major military tech uh, leaders in the world, in France and Germany, the United States, a little bit of anxiety because it's a, it's a competitor. So they want to invest, but not too much because you don't want someone to push you out. But it's also something that the world has to observe from a political standpoint, right? Because if Ukraine is a major leader in military tech and it has a massive military that's highly trained and experienced at this point, unfortunately. Ukraine is an ally of the West now, but it's also on the border with Russia and you don't know what the future holds. So I think it's an interesting dynamic because it's something that people want to develop and obviously people want to get in there and, and there's money to be made there. But it's it's a sensitive thing as well. Lillian, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks very much for joining us today. I've got a couple, if I may. Firstly, where are you right now? I thought the, the alarms were going off, uh, well, about an hour ago. What's, what's the news happening right now in Kiev? And are, are you speaking to us from a, from a basement in your building? What's normal life like under under air raid? And then secondly, what's well, so going on then? What's we'll give you that one first. Yeah, so I, I will say that the sirens went off twice in the last couple of hours. And I'm giggling because I did not go to a shelter or anything. I'm just in a conference room in our office here in Kiev, uh, where I live and work at the Kiev Independent. To be honest, you, there's something about living in Kiev. First of all, the air defense systems, the Patriot air defense systems are really strong. And very, they intercept most things. And so you get, you have this sort of sense of false sense of security, I should say, that you don't need to go anywhere. And also you sort of get patterns. So if there's a siren that goes off in the middle of the day, attacks on Kiev don't usually happen around 1 or 2 p.m. That's very rare. They usually happen at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., of course, when you're trying to sleep. So you figure, well, I don't think this is going to be the, the time I need to go to the shelter. You know, it's weird what you get used to. Uh, you can adjust to and, and not be afraid of anymore. In the beginning, the first time you're scared, the second time you're a little less scared, and then the third time you're not even getting out of bed. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, please, please do, don't uh, don't feel you have to stay yapping onto us if you want to uh, if you want to move. Um, but um, uh, another question for me: uh, What do you think the impact on Ukraine's economy is going to be as young men are increasingly encouraged slash forced by legislation to join the uh, military? 
Yeah, that's a really, well, first of all, I think that mobilization, from what I can tell, and this is, of course, very speculative, I don't really know, it's not going to be, right now, there's these numbers being reported like they're going to mobilize half a million men. One, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't exactly know the reasons, but it just seems like it would be extremely disruptive, not to society, but also to the economy. Like, I don't think that the country can do that. But so it's hard to tell right now what that would be. I think it can, it's a little worrisome because you do have, I think sometimes if there's a fear of mobilization, which there is, there's people who participate a bit less in the economy. They might try to leave. Uh, they might live in places where they are not easily found. But I think overall, I think it really remains to be seen what that will look like. Because I, I, I think we have to see actually what ends up happening with the mobilization efforts and if men really will be taken out of roles that will affect the economy. It just doesn't, when you live in Kiev, it just does, it seems unlikely, but I think it's definitely something to watch. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important to say? I think it was just one thing about Ukraine uh, trying to attract international investment and and how it can do that. And I think there's this, this thing I always like mentioning when I talk about this, which is that there's a lot of talk, right, about investing in Ukraine all the time. And multi-donor platforms and you have talks about these reconstruction funds at Davos and, and all of the banks getting together and talking. But a lot of this stuff isn't really in motion yet. It's just like planning. And as I was saying earlier, there's like very little actual commercial investment in Ukraine. It's all institutional money. And the issue is just that, yes, we need more war insurance. We need the government needs to reduce barriers to investment uh, and to businesses operating here, foreign businesses, and also there are concerns with corruption in Ukraine that, of course, just tarnish its its reputation and investors are afraid of that. And I think there's just there's one thing that I always think about is that Ukraine, it, it tries to make the argument, the sort of moral argument that it's important to invest in Ukraine. But as people say, there's no premium for investing in Ukraine right now. Yes, it might be cheaper, but the risks are enormous. And one, the war needs to end, but other things need to happen. More air defense, but also more government protections, a friendlier investment climate. A lot of things need to happen to really uh, spur investment that aren't quite happening yet. But I know there's a lot of interest among foreign investors, among people generally abroad who want to give money to Ukraine, but it's just very difficult right now. And I think this year and in the next couple of years, when I think the war will definitely still be a hot war, Ukraine needs to figure something out to help that. Because right now it's it's pretty low and investors are pretty scared, rightfully so. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Joe Barnes, Brussels correspondent, thank you so much for joining us. Can we come to you? Hi, folks. Thank you. And sorry if I'm slightly noisy. I'm in a big uh, European Council's conference centre where European Union foreign minister are meeting. But yeah, listeners might remember warnings from NATO basically suggesting that there could be a war within the next two decades and they recommend civilians should uh, stop preparations, basically. But what we haven't really looked at is how could a war with Russia unfold? So I, I started looking at various sort of open documents, whether it be intelligence agencies who have published reviews or leaked documents. And one thing that sort of caught my eye was the importance of this 60-mile stretch of land, which is rolling fields of buttercups, small hills, forests and lakes, which straddles the Lithuanian and Polish border. And it's called the Sorwalki Gap. It runs along the border between Poland and Lithuania, connecting Belarus and then the Russian military exclave of Kaliningrad. Though little is known about the Sorwalki Gap, it is basically where NATO generals and military planners from the West believe that they are most susceptible to a Russian attack. So if Vladimir Putin's forces moved from Belarus across the gap to Kaliningrad in a sudden thrust, it would cut off Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania from their allies in Central and Western Europe. You're basically looking at the Kremlin is still a serious military threat on NATO's eastern flank. So last week, Boris Pistorius, the German defence minister, said Putin could declare war on NATO in five to eight years. His caution came after Admiral Rob Bauer, who's chairman of NATO's military committee, said civilians needed to be ready for war with Russia within 20 years. So it's, this is what got me looking at how the war potentially unfold. And quite helpfully, there was a leaked German military planning document, which was likely drawn up to assist with preparations for a large scale exercise in that part of Europe to prepare German troops. And it is known as Alliance Defence 2020. And the Sawaki scenario, it was basically imagines Moscow mobilising 200,000 more troops this February for a spring offensive in Ukraine. By June, Russian forces are making significant advances, while Kyiv is essentially hampered by faltering Western support and waning interest in its war efforts. With Ukraine on the back foot, Putin seeks to seize on his successes by launching a series of cyber attacks on Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, at the same, at the same time whipping up tensions among their ethnic Russian minorities. Talking about this cyber attack, Kaya Kallas became the first sort of NATO leader last week to suggest that actually Russia was behind large-scale GPS navigation disruptions across the southern area of the Baltic Sea. I don't want to be a scaremonger, we could be many years off, but the warnings are there. So you have talk of a new Russian mobilisation, you have waning Western interest, you've got some sort of hybrid cyber attacks already going on, according to Kaya Kallas. And so according to the German scenario, back to that, Moscow's hybrid strikes in the Baltics would trigger clashes that Putin could use as a pretext to hold a large-scale manoeuvre exercise in Western Russia and Belarus from September. That would include some 50,000 troops to be drilled on how to conduct war against NATO, which includes the capture of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and possibly bombing campaigns on Western Europe. The exercise would likely mirror drills conducted so last year by the Russian military in Belarus, which the Estonian Military Intelligence Directorate has said demonstrated that Moscow still has enough strength to exert credible military pressure in our region. Okay, but then so back to the German scenario. A month after the manoeuvres would be launched, the Kremlin would then claim that Kaliningrad was under an immediate threat of NATO attack, moving medium-range missiles and more troops to the exclave. The troop movements are designed to put a gradual squeeze on the Suwalki Gap, which would now sit between two rather large gatherings of Russian troops. 
It will then gradually, so this being Russia, would gradually escalate into an artificially induced border conflict, that's called the German planning, with numerous deaths furthering inflaming tensions in the area. The German armed forces, the Bundeswehr, expect NATO diplomatic efforts to spring into action by the December. So this is basically an entire year before sort of diplomatic efforts come to a head, and that also is basically potentially hampered by the US presidential election, where a Joe Biden defeat would leave Washington essentially rudderless. So the Germans suggest that a it won't be until January 2025 where a special meeting of NATO leaders could be held and 30,000 German soldiers would be dispatched close to Sulwalki Gap as a deterrence. But then Moscow would seek to fight back in the diplomatic sphere, looking at halt inter- intervening in an extraordinary United Nations Security Council, essentially accusing the West of plotting an attack on Russian soil. But by now... The Kremlin has basically moved the two armoured divisions, a mechanised infantry division and a divisional headquarters, all established in Belarus. That's around a total of 70,000 troops. And then it isn't until May 2025, according to the German scenario, that NATO seeks to activate measures of credible deterrence to prevent a strike on the Sawalki Gap from directions of Belarus and Kaliningrad. It suggests that 300,000 troops would be sent to the alliance's eastern flank where the likes of Poland and Estonia have been warning of a heightened threat from Russia as it is. But if Russian forces invaded Sawalki Gap before NATO troops arrived, it is unlikely that Moscow would engage in a prolonged ground war. And that's according to analysts I've been speaking to and following on the internet. So Fabian Hoffman, who's a doctoral research fellow at the Oslo Nuclear Project, has suggested that actually as soon as... Russia jumps in and takes a sliver of Kaliningrad, its doctrine would suggest that it would then attempt to coerce NATO in submission by signaling the ability to enact and inflict progressively greater amounts of damage. So basically, while NATO's Article 5 demands that members collectively respond to an attack on any part of NATO, it does not require military retaliation. So basically, what we'd see is a frantic sort of kickoff of political and diplomatic discussions while Russian troops are moving in. And I believe Don wants to jump in, so I will offer him the floor. Lovely. Thanks, Joe. Just as you're talking there, it just reminded me that in December, we may remember Germany. So the German Defence Minister, Boris Pistorius, he na- announced that in quite a bold step, Germany is going to base an armoured tank brigade out of Lithuania in, oh, I can't remember the date, did they say 26, 27, something like that. But I think partly recognising the need to bolster NATO's eastern, eastern flank, you, you remember there is already the NATO EFP mission, Enhanced Forward Presence, which has a battalion or currently two battalions of, of Brits in Estonia, others elsewhere in Poland, uh, Lithuania and uh, and Latvia. But outside of that, I don't think this is coming under the EFP banner, but Germany has said it's going to move about a 5,000 strong armoured brigade, including Leopard 2 tanks, into Lithuania, which, as I say, partly to, to bolster the, the eastern flank, but I think that the recognition there that the Svalky Gap is is an area of, of extreme uh, vulnerability uh, or, or possibly in, in wargaming the, the most likely area for a manufactured outrage on the border or an incursion or an accident or something like that. But just to add that whilst there are these plans going on that, that, that you've been mentioning, Joe, there are also hard decisions and quite strikingly uh, novel decisions for for the recent posture of the German armed forces in that they have committed a brigade to to Lithuania. I thought I'd better just bung that in there, Joe. Oh yeah, no, for sure. So I visited the Estonian mission from the EFP with Britain to well, then Ben Wallace, the former Defence Secretary. 
there. We've sorted our challenge to two tanks. The Danes are there helping us as well. So there's lots of presence, but it's whether they can basically move quick enough, I guess, is the assumption. Or would they simply just end up acting as a tripwire while the rest of NATO got its game together and act together? But yeah, it's all interesting. Um, so basically, going back to this idea that Article 5 is there, so while Article 5 is meant to be this ironclad, one for, one for all, all for one idea, analysts have basically suggested that there could be some Western leaders in Europe and potentially a Donald Trump-led US that may feel the threat of war with a nuclear-armed Russia is not worth the risk for basically going with Article 5. So Article 5 was triggered after 9-11 terror attacks. It's pretty much every NATO army going into, into Afghanistan to kill the terrorist operations being fostered there. But that's it's never been triggered with a genuine sort of ground war with Russia or another force. So look, I'm sure NATO commanders would be very confident in facing up against their Russian enemy. Look, Russia has lost, as I mentioned earlier, 300,000 troops killed or wounded since its invasion. It's massively depleted forces, poorly trained, but who knows? And this is a Russian military analyst by the name of Pavel Belgenhuer said, and he told this to DW, Deutsche Welle, it's like predicting the result of a soccer match. Yes, basically, Brazil should beat America in soccer, but I have seen the Americans beat Brazil in South Africa. You never know the results until the game is played. And that's having a quick look at the Silwalkie gap and what could happen. Thank you very much, Joe. Dom Nichols. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, David. I note with weary head shake that Putin has signed a decree apparently declaring the 1867 sale of Alaska from Russia to the USA as illegal. So Russia sold it back then for $7.2 million. Been grumbling in recent years about it being unfair. It's really their, their land, etc., etc., etc. Typical grievance stuff. I note it because we're going to see more of this. He's using this to play to his domestic audience ahead of March, uh, the March elections, sham as they will be. But he's still talking this up, so we should expect more of these uh, these weird political hernias, if you like. He's talking tough and uh, picking fights. He knows he won't have to get his gloves on for. Uh, but even so, we note it. It's amusing. It's somewhat typical, playing to the domestic audience, and uh, yeah, expect more. But um, yeah, I've never been to Alaska. Anyone care to uh, tell me what it's like? I've just done a quick sort of Google, and seven point two million back then is worth one hundred twenty million dollars today. Is it Alaska is worth one hundred twenty million dollars? Uh, answers, please, to the usual place. Thanks. Thanks, Don. Please, please stop trolling the listeners with that. Just quickly from me, just an update to a story we covered earlier on the remarks by Robert Fico, the Slovakian PM. So Ukraine's foreign minister has come out and slapped down Slovakia's prime minister for saying the war with Russia will only end when Kiev gives up its claim to Crimea and the Donbass. Uh, this comes from spokesman Ole Nikolenko, who said there can be no compromise on territorial integrity, neither Ukraine nor Slovakia nor any other country. He said Ukraine and partners are making efforts to get Russians out of Crimea, Donbass and Luhansk so that they do not go any further, including to Kosicki, Priyashivsky and other Slovak regions. Let's be frank, without security in Ukraine, there'll be no security in Slovakia or Europe in general. We have a joint effort to bring the Ukrainian victory closer. So we will follow this. It's going to be an interesting meeting on Wednesday, I think, between the Ukrainian Prime Minister and Robert Fico. We'll obviously bring you what we know on Wednesday and Thursday about that. Um, Lillian, as our guest, would you like the very final words? I mean, I think that this year, there's a lot of talk about that I hear about finding 
a solution to the end of the war. And what I hear more and more openly, but also in other conversations, is this idea of partitioning Ukraine, of having a solution where you freeze the conflict maybe and you have a North Korea, South Korea type of situation. And, and people in business and investing talk about this because they think, well, if you did that, then it would calm things down and more people would maybe bring their money in and things like that. And I think whenever I hear that, I just want to shout at the person and say, Russia isn't going to stop there. If you said, okay, let's draw a line, we'll give you Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. I mean, in my opinion, this never, I don't think it's mine, in my opinion, I, I don't think that's Russia's goal. If that was Russia's goal, they have those things. And they continue to launch missiles all over the country every day. So I really caution against this narrative that I see more and more that we need to come to a peace agreement and stop. Of course, we need to stop the fighting. We all want the fighting to stop. But the the idea that somehow peace agreements and cutting off a part of the country as a solution to making Russia stop what it's doing, I don't see that as something realistic because I don't think that's what Russia really wants. And I'm sorry to end on such a, a negative note, but it's to, to put it more positively, I think if you give Ukraine what it needs and you actually support it financially, and you provide it with the weapons it's been asking for, long-range weapons and, and planes, then maybe it could have more of a fighting chance to actually push Russia back and actually have a, a stronger position at the negotiating table. But that might also be me just wishfully thinking. But last thing I'll say is that I'm hoping this year will bring some decisive victories for Ukraine, because, of course, last year there were hardly any. So high hopes for this year. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 